Psalm 37. A Psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. They will soon fade like the grass. They will wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draws the sword and bends their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has now than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For the blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. And those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so that you should dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. And yet the Lord will not abandon him to his power, or let him, or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. And you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. Behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless. Behold, the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. For transgressors shall altogether be destroyed. 
The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and He saves them because they take refuge in Him. And now turning with me to our New Testament reading this morning and our sermon text, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. So we continue working our way through the Beatitudes. Uh, we will give our attention to verse 5. But I think we do well to remind ourselves of the totality of the blessings that Christ pronounces on the citizens of heaven. So we'll begin reading in verse 1 through verse 12. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth, and He taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's Word. Let's go before the Lord as we pray and ask that He illuminates our hearts to understand the very things that He is blessing us with this very day. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for the message of Your Son. The great proclamation that He brings to all who turn to Him. We pray as we consider the blessing of the meek that You would help us to understand what it means to be meek and the great inheritance that awaits. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So how would you plan to take over the world? I remember when I was in uh, high school and even uh, middle school, I had friends who would always talk about their, uh, in, in somewhat joking forms, perhaps some people, I was worried that they weren't joking, the various schemes that they planned to concoct to become you know, the, 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 the one who ruled the world. I remember when I was uh, in junior high school, there was a cartoon that came on every afternoon on Animaniacs is the, is the name of the show, and I'd, I'd go home every day and watch it, a uh, really funny program if I recall it correctly, I haven't seen it in years, but there's a little program, a little mini kind of sketch within the cartoon called Pinky and the Brain of these two kind of lab rats who had been genetically altered, and one was an idiot, and the other was a genius. Uh, and the two rats would always conspire to do one thing, and, the, and every episode began the same way. As the kind of idiot rat would say to uh, this kind of Orson Welles-type genius rat, hey, brain, what are we going to do tonight? To which the brain would respond, we're going to do the same thing, Pinky, that we do every night. Try to take over the world. And of course, every week, uh, every episode, their plots and schemes would fail in this really comical-type fashion. But we see the quest for world dominance is not something that's restricted to you know, Warner Brothers cartoons. 
You look at the history of the human race, and over and over again, you see men with a thirst for world dominance, be it Alexander the Great, be it the Roman Empire, be it Napoleon, be it Hitler. Even as we've seen the kind of revolutionary furor over the past several years, we find that such desire for a hostile takeover is not restricted to one political persuasion or another. Uh, Even uh, a distinction between what we might say Christians and non-Christians. I can't tell you the number of emails I've received over the past few years of uh, even believers uh, and, and, and blogs that have been posted of calling believers to uh, kind of take back America for God, for, for God by means of uh, human strength, power, and even arms. How is it, if we might point the question more pointedly, how is it that God's kingdom is going to be established on earth? That's the great hope that we all have as believers, right? How does that come about? Is it going to come about through armed revolution? It's the very temptation that even many of Jesus' hearers in his own day had. You see, when you look at the the laundry list of the disciples, there were some who were members of these kind of zealot political parties. And Jesus had to remind them over and over again, it is not by the power of the sword that the kingdom of God is inaugurated. But if it doesn't come through force of arms, how else should it come? We have to remind ourselves of the context of Jesus' message here. Remember, uh, as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, the focus has been on the proclamation of the kingdom of God. That is the sum and substance of Jesus' message in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we are given a representation of what that kingdom proclamation looked like. That light that comes to shine in the midst of darkness. As Jesus comes to bring and proclaim blessing upon the people of God, the message he gives is a message that is as relevant today in Oregon in 2022 uh, as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus first heralded the inauguration and arrival of the heavenly kingdom here on earth Jesus here pronounces a blessing, and he speaks once again of his topsy-turvy kingdom, a kingdom that subverts all the expectations of how Christ's kingdom is actually established on earth. So I'd like us to consider the blessing that Jesus gives here in two, uh, uh, two parts. First, I'd like to consider the matter of meekness, and then secondly, the question of our inheritance. We see right away Jesus pronounces a blessing on the meek, but we have to ask ourselves, what is meekness? What is it that Jesus is getting at? And it's one thing that we have to remind ourselves, and we we looked at this a few weeks ago when we looked at the the, the Beatitudes as a whole. Uh, Meekness is not a natural disposition. Not in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. Remember, these are blessings that are placed upon those who have been ushered into the kingdom of grace. So we have to tell ourselves and be reminded that when Jesus is talking about meekness here, he's not talking about weakness. I think that's what so many people think of when they think of meekness, or perhaps they might think in terms of timidity. We need to remember that Jesus himself is proclaimed as the meekest man who ever lived. And yet here is the same one who pronounced judgment on the wicked. And in his fury, 
turn the tables in the temple. And so we should also say that meekness is not a lack of courage. Meekness is not a matter of cowardice. In fact, you read Revelation chapter 21, and cowardice is condemned as much as is self-assertiveness and brazen recklessness. Nor is meekness seen to be merely as indifference to matters, as if we just don't really care what's going on in the world. Meekness is not seen merely as some type of kind of winsome behavior or manner. This is not a natural disposition. Jesus is not saying, if if I put it like this, Jesus is not saying, blessed are the introverts. For those who have the natural disposition to just kind of keep to themselves. This is not a natural disposition, though it might outwardly look like that at times because meekness is so often described and characterized by those who have been thrown under the bus, those who have been humiliated and oppressed that's, I think, too superficial of you. As, as we recall last week when we considered blessed are those who mourn, Christians mourn not differently from non-Christians, but they mourn more deeply because they mourn. We mourn our own sin. We mourn the misery into which the human race has been thrust. So the meekness here is a spirit-wrought meekness. As Paul says to the church of Galatia in Galatians chapter 5, that one of the fruits that the Spirit produces in the hearts of believers is that of meekness, gentleness, and humility. It has to do with character. It has to do with the nature and the manner in which we as Christians respond to gross evil in the world. Perhaps the best way to describe meekness is this. It is strength under control. I've never been horseback riding. I don't really have an interest in in anything like that. I'm much happier riding in a a car or pickup truck. Uh, But if you were to go onto a farm and uh, to ride a horse, uh, most people would ride a horse with a bit and bridle. There's a way to rein in the power of this massive stallion. It's the only way you can really control it. It must be broken in. It must be bridled and reined in. There's a way to control the great power that sits beneath you. Might I suggest to you that's what meekness is. It's not timidity, but it is the spirit-wrought virtue of bringing your passions under control, as it were. To rein in those emotions and submit them to the Word of God to respond appropriately in its appropriate time. It includes submitting our impulses to a higher authority. Why do I say that? Well, I say it because Isaiah 66 describes the meek man as the one who submits to the Word of God with trembling. As the one who exhibits that gentle spirit, even adorning the soul in the midst of horrific abuse, as 1 Peter chapter 3 describes the meek person. It's not something any of us would do uh, on our own power. It's not anything that any of us can do by our own kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality. This is a supernatural work of grace in the heart where the Holy Spirit trains us as, as Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 3, to repudiate ungodliness, 
to rein in those natural passions and desires, and even in the face of injustice, to rein in our responses to respond appropriately. Meekness is not, in other words, uh, a cinnamon, a cinnamon, a synonym for being a floor mat. Uh, it's, it's not simply a, a, an unqualified pacifism that Jesus is talking about here. Rather, Jesus is talking about what it looks like to respond with quiet courage and fortitude. Meekness is not weakness. Rather, it is strength under control. And this is our very Savior's point here. You might not have recognized it until this morning, but this is, in fact, the great blessing. And in this blessing, Jesus is in fact quoting the Old Testament. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's in fact quoting Psalm chapter 37. And what we see is Jesus is not ripping this psalm out of context. He's not simply just kind of, you know, did his daily devotions that morning and said, oh, this looks like a nice verse. I think I'm going to slap this verse in the middle of my sermon for no particular reason. Jesus is in fact citing Psalm 37, 11, as that particular verse explicates and illuminates and exegetes and interprets what Psalm 37 is actually about. Psalm 37 is an extended meditation on meekness in the face of persecution and adversity. I mean, to recall Israel's moment in salvation history uh, in Psalm 37, as they have been brought to the promised land, they've been promised an everlasting inheritance, the land of Canaan. And now as they have entered the land and they've been called to possess it, wickedness continues to abound. The kingdom has been established in its Old Testament form. The land has been promised to be theirs, and yet evil continues to flourish. The Canaanites continue to dwell in the land. And they continue to oppress the godly. What are the godly to do in the face of such wickedness and adversity and hostility? What do you do when you look around and you see that your nation is still subject to so much wickedness and injustice? Well, here David, under inspiration of the Spirit, instructs the nation how to act in the face of adversity. Three times he says in this psalm, do not fret because of evildoers. Do not cast your soul into despair. Rather, you are to trust in the Lord and to continue doing good in the land. You are to keep on keeping on. You are to delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to Him, and in time He will give you the desires of your heart. You are to be still, And wait patiently for him, as he will vindicate you in due time. And then two times it says, David says, be angry, but do not sin. So we find that Paul himself cites this psalm as well to the church in Ephesus. It's not a sin to be angry at wickedness and injustice. But be careful that you do not allow your passions to cause you to respond to sin sinfully. Does that make sense? There is a proper way to respond to sin. And there is an improper way to respond to sin. We are not to respond to sin with indifference. Nor are we to respond to sin uh, in the nation uh, with uh, ungodly Uh, 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 ungodly responses. 
where we let our own anger get out of control. As we considered in uh, last Sunday evening, as we're working our way through the Psalms in the evening, Psalm 17, uh, as Scripture defend, uh, condemns vigilantism. We're not called to be like Batman, taking matters into our own hands. Rather, there is a call to bear under the weight of wickedness and not to respond with indifference, not to respond with approval, but to continue praying that the Lord would Himself enact justice in the land. Though the wicked plots against the righteous, five times this psalm tells us who it is that will inherit the land. In verse 9, it is those who wait on the Lord. In verse 22, it is the righteous who will inherit the land. In verse 29 and 34, it is those blessed by the Lord. And in verse 11, he describes the righteous character of those who will inherit the land in due time. It is the meek. Might I suggest to you that meekness here is the word that describes the entire totality of life that the, the, the psalmist is calling the people of God to live to. That in the face of wickedness and adversity, we continue doing good and entrusting ourselves to the Lord, praying, how long, O Lord, will you deli- until you deliver us? And looking forward to that day, not by taking matters into our own hands, because the Lord says what? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance is a prerogative that is uh, uh, reserved for the Lord and the Lord alone. It is not upon the, the duty of the Christian to take those matters into his own hands. That is meekness. The great temptation to want to act like God in this situation. The great call for revolutionary armaments. No, here Christ is calling the citizens of heaven to display a gentle meekness, that strength kept under, that keeps our anger under control, not by pretending everything is okay, but by recognizing this itself is truly wicked and turning and entrusting ourselves to the Lord, even as Christ entrusted Himself to His Father as He bore so much unrighteousness and wickedness as He was nailed to a cross. It's not a natural disposition. Who here could do this on their own strength? None of us here would want to rein in our own anger. Especially when we are the ones who are being mistreated. This is not a superficial veneer. This is a spirit-wrought virtue. This is why Paul will speak in Colossians 3 uh, of the bowels of meekness. This is something that the Spirit works deep in our hearts. You know, there is a a scene in Schindler's List where uh, one of the prison guards uh, tries to be merciful because Oscar Schindler had told him, you need to learn to show mercy. And yet he tries to use mercy as a means to gain power over others. And finally, he just gives up because he sees it as too boring. It's only a superficial veneer for him. It is only something that runs skin deep. He doesn't grasp what real mercy is. And you see what happens to him in the end. No, Paul calls for this not to be just some type of superficial response to people, of slapping a band-aid on the problem. It calls for a true meekness and humility to take place. 
In the Old Testament, Moses is considered to be the meekest man in the Old Testament. And he's called the meekest man in the Old Testament in a particular place in Israel's history. As Moses' own brother and sister lead a mutiny against Moses. And the Lord responds with anger. They say, how dare you do this? I've appointed Moses as the leader. He's the meekest man on the face of the earth. And you would treat him like this. And he strikes Moses' sister with leprosy, Miriam. And what is Moses' response? Does Moses just simply look and go, finally, sis, you got what you deserved. You, you had it coming to you. And Moses says, oh Lord, please, have mercy on my sister. He's not saying, oh, my sister didn't deserve this. No, she, she deserved it. The Lord was just in his judgment. But Moses has this disposition of mercy even to those who have betrayed him most fully. And isn't that the disposition of our Savior towards us? We who have sinned against Him, we who continue to sin against Him day in and day out, yet Jesus says, I am meek and lowly of heart. That's what meekness is. What, that, that's not weakness. That's tremendous fortitude to have such integrity, to have such character. It takes great strength to walk with such meekness. That's why when the New Testament speaks of meekness, it's contrasted with the quarrelsome behavior of those who are all so, always so self-assertive. That's why Scripture calls us to be long-suffering towards one another, to bear uh, under their injuries against us. That when we are sinned against, that we learn to forbear with them. That we do not retaliate you know, slug for slug that when we are slandered, we do not slander in return. Rather, that we plead that the Lord would be merciful to them and be gracious to forgive them. That is not weakness. It's probably the, the strongest thing anybody on the face of the earth can do, and we cannot do that in our own power. It's quite courage to do what is right, even in the midst of such animosity. It means having to confront others with the truth and to do so in love. It's so easy to confront people with the truth in anger, isn't it? When you've been wrong to say, what have you done to me? And to come out guns blazing. It is so much harder to speak the truth in love though, isn't it? Even when you have been offended, to maintain that open disposition towards them, seeking their restoration. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, writing to a church that has, as we last year when we worked our way through Second Corinthians, you recall how poorly that church had treated their pastor. How they continued to slander him, how they have di- mistrusted him, how they continued to say all things of, of awfulness against him. And so Paul says in the beginning of chapter 10, he says, I, with the meekness and gentleness of Christ, implore you to amend your ways. Meekness does not mean shirking from our responsibilities. But rather, having the courage to address those those difficulties, but doing so in a manner that retains a gentle spirit. What is it that Jesus says to His disciples? You are to be wise as serpents as I send you out into the world, and yet as harmless as doves. 
speaking hard truths with gentleness. We cannot cower from speaking the hard truths, but we cannot speak hard truths harshly. Rather, we are to speak the truth in love with a view towards their restoration. Think what Paul tells the church of Galatia. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual must seek to, resp- re- uh, to restore him in a spirit of meekness, knowing that you too could fall at any moment. As Paul tells Timothy, the, 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 the character and quality of an elder or pastor, he says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Rather, he must be kind to all, patiently enduring evil, and even correcting his opponents with meekness. So that God might perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, it is meekness that is demonstrated not just to one another, to insiders, but to outsiders as well. As Peter calls us in 1 Peter chapter 3, to be prepared always to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us, yet we are always to do that with gentleness. Meekness is the word there. And respect. And so what we have here are two different types of people in view. How is it that you respond to the, in the midst of adversity and hostility? Are you going to respond with meekness? Or with aggression and self-assertiveness? And the question before us is, which one is going to win out in the end? Which quality of character is going to be the type of person who inherits the land? Right, this is Frederick Nietzsche's big criticism of Christianity. Christianity had created a culture of weak men, a group of men that was too otherworldly. Might I suggest that perhaps uh, an otherworldliness is the very thing that the church needs in this day and age. To be reminded that this world is not our home. That we are called to set our affections on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Yet Nietzsche said that this, what was needed in his view was the ubermensch, right? The superman, the man who would take life by the horns, who's find, who finds his meaning in the, the will to power and the exertion of dominance over one another. Who is it that takes the land? Is it the man who takes life by the horns, uh, by the guy who climbs the corporate ladder, the guy who, who claims <coughs> excuse me, these things for himself? Is that how the kingdom of God is established? Again, the Beatitudes are dealing with the question of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Who is it that inherits the land? Who is it that inherits the earth? Is it the aggressor? Is it the revolutionary? Is it the self-assertive? Does it come through force of arms? Does it come through political revolution? Is it established by the dominion of force or will? Note what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are the meek, for it is the meek who shall inherit the earth. Not the aggressor. Why? Notice this. It is not a wage. It is not a paycheck. It is an inheritance. The kingdom of God as it comes on earth is something that is established not by the work of man. We do not build the kingdom of God. Christ comes and the proclamation is sent out and Christ by His Spirit builds the kingdom. He makes us citizens of heaven. We inherit it through the work of Christ. Again, this is why grammar is important. It's something that is received. It's not something that we do. 
It is the meek who receive. The kingdom is not something that is acquired through sheer strength of will. What has been promised to the citizens of heaven is not obtained by the power of the sword. It is something that is freely given. The promise of salvation, it is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. It comes not through the strength of man, nor of the will of flesh, nor of one's nobility or blood or, or noble birth. It is given through the free mercy of God in Christ. And notice that it is given not to the aggressor, but to the one who does not fret because of evildoers. It is given, the land is given to the one who continues to do good in the face of adversity, to the one who continues entrusting himself to the Lord. This is Jesus himself giving an exposition of Psalm 37. You're looking for the greatest commentary on Psalm 37, might I commend to you Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. It's great, you don't have to go out and buy any more commentaries on Psalm 37. That's what Jesus is doing for us. But notice what has been given as well. We spoke the other week about the, 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 the Beatitudes, how they're bookended with the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this is like a giant Oreo cookie. I love Oreo cookies. I've had three boxes this week. I'm on a diet, so. Um, but but the, you have the kingdom of God that's bookended at the beginning and the end. The idea is that all of this is the blessing of the kingdom. Heaven is yours. To those who trust in the king of that kingdom. But not just heaven. Earth as well. Heaven and earth. Notice what Jesus does here. Psalm 37, David says, the meek shall inherit the land. And yet Jesus now says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Is Jesus changing uh, or or altering the word of God to make it mean something that it it did not initially mean? No. No. When you, when you hear the, the, the language of inheriting the land in the Old Testament, what's being brought into view is the promise of the, the, the inheritance of the people of God. And under the Old Testament, it's given that, that pictorial form of Canaan, and yet Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews says under the inspiration of the Spirit, that when Abraham set his sights for Canaan, he's not simply looking to inherit that sliver of land in the Middle East. No, Abraham and all the saints after him were seeking a heavenly destination, a heavenly homeland, a new heavens and a new earth as Isaiah describes it in Isaiah chapter 66. Jesus is not changing the meaning here. Rather, Jesus is highlighting, he's putting a big neon sign around what it is that's actually transpiring. That now that the kingdom of God has come, now that it's being inaugurated through the person and work of Christ, it starts small. We'll see that when we start begin looking at the parables in a couple months. It starts small, but it begins to grow and grow till it covers the face of the waters and the face of the whole earth. The reality is that the time of the kingdom has finally come and the fulfillment of the prophets of Daniel and Isaiah that the kingdom of God comes to outlast and outstrip the kingdoms of men, but it does not do so in the way that earthly kingdoms do it. You know, the only way that, that, that Hitler's Nazi regime was destroyed was, was through the Allied alliance in, in, in the mid-20th century. And I'm not saying that was a bad thing. It was very good for people to stand up and rise against Hitler, that's part of the job of, of, of the civil magistrate. Those are good things. But how is it that wicked's going to be obliterated? It's not going to be obliterated in the earth through force of arms. It's going to be obliterated by the church taking the seat of power and authority. Rather, it's inheritance 
that is given, and it is given to the meek, those who wait for the Lord to do this. Because there is coming a day when the Lord himself will return and will smite the nations with the sword of his mouth as he stands as the judge of all the earth. As he puts to death, death itself. That's why we had our confession of faith earlier today, speaking of the final judgment, that Christ alone is the judge of the earth. And it is his prerogative and his timing when he will bring an end to wickedness and he will say to his Brothers and sisters who've been adopted into his family, come receive the inheritance. Come enter into the kingdom of my Father and of your Father, of my God and of your God. This is a great blessing that is freely given. It is not something that is earned. It's not the revolutionaries who are going to inherit Oregon. Oregon is Christ's inheritance. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 The Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations. Jesus, as he stands before his apostles, his disciples, as he's about to ascend to heaven, says, all authority in heaven and earth, heaven and earth has been already given to me. Now go and make disciples. It is the great promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the growth of the kingdom of God. That as the church expands, it does not expand with the power of the sword, but by the proclamation of the word that brings sinners from death to life, that calls the the, uh, sinners to repentance. It is something much more powerful that could be exerted by sheer act of force or will. It is something that is accomplished only by the Spirit, and that is the great blessing of the kingdom, the great assurance that those who have been subjugated to Christ in grace will inherit the new heavens and the new earth on the day of Christ's return. And so what are we called to do now? And that is the great blessing of meekness, isn't it? What is meekness? Somebody ever asks you, it's your pop quiz, what is meekness? You say, let's look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37 tells us what it means to be meek. Not to fret because of evildoers. Ah, Meekness speaks to the anxieties that we struggle in the face of such political stupidity, such wickedness, such heinousness. It should cause us to mourn and to grieve, but it should not cause us to fret because there is a king who will put an end to injustice. And trust yourself to the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Be still and wait upon the Lord no matter the cost. For the wicked, though they, it looks like they flourish today, they are like the glory of that pasture out there. It looks really nice in April. But watch what happens come August when there hasn't been rain for four months. The grass withers. The flowers fade. But the Word of our God stands forever. It should be our prayer this morning. Lord, make us meek. And how is that meekness seen? I think first and foremost, that meekness is expressed through prayer. Because what is prayer? But an expression of our own helplessness. Lord, there's nothing I can do, and I am so frustrated with the world around me. What do I do? Such is the manner of prayer. The praying man is the meek man because the meek man, when he prays, acknowledges his own inability. It's an expression of trust and helplessness that reminds us that whatever comes will not come about by our own doing, but it comes 
at the Lord's own good pleasure. It is something that He graciously gives. And it reminds us that we will not acquire heaven by our own strength. Rather, it comes through the weakness of the cross. As Christ Himself defeated the forces of evil by being nailed to a tree, and yet in that moment of meekness was the greatest display of the power of God that silenced Satan once and for all. This is why meekness characterizes the citizen of heaven. For the citizen of heaven knows that what has been promised to him is something freely given, is an inheritance, not as something earned. It is the spiritual grace that is forged in the fires of adversity, where though impoverished and though sorrowful, we wait for salvation. It's the great promise by which we purify our hearts with the promise that has been given to us in Christ that we long for, as we long for that alien righteousness that only God alone can satisfy, where we show mercy to the poor and forgive our offenders even as Christ has shown mercy and forgiven us. Meekness is not weakness, but it is the great blessing of grace poured out in the heart of those whose affections are turned heavenward of the one who knows that Christ is our chief end and our reward, and that when we have Him, we have all. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that You, you would make us a meek people, that You would bless us with the meekness of Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ, that we might see Christ face to face on that last day, that His inheritance might be made ours. Through faith in Christ, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.